May the 13th, 1839. He was raised Scottish. His uh, mother was a very godly woman. And uh, when he went off to college, uh, she tr- well, before that, she tried to instill Christian principles and values in him, but he just wasn't interested. And he went to Edinburgh to go to, to the university. And while he was there, he got in with the wrong crowd, and he soon joined the Atheist Society. And he got to drinking. And when he left home, his mother had given him a Bible, and she had written inside his name, and she had written John 3.16, and she had written it out completely, you know, the whole verse. And... Uh, he was, as, as college students tend to be, he was a little bit poor at one point, and so uh, needing some money for some alcohol, he went and pawned several things that were in his possession, one of which was the Bible that his mother had given to him. Well, he became the, uh, he worked his way up at the largest hospital in Edinburgh to where he was the chief of staff and um, was the president of the local atheist society and was very successful in his career. And one day a man was brought in who had been in an accident, and he, and he was critical, and, and Dr. McKay went in to check on him, and there wasn't much he could do, but the man seemed to be delirious. He kept saying that, that somebody needed to get his landlady to bring the book, and, and he, he didn't know what book he was talking about. Well, um, it, Dr. McKay went and left and came back a little while later and asked the nurse, and the nurse said the man had died. And he said, well, did the book ever show up? And he she said, yes. And he said, well, what book was it? And she said, well, why don't you go in the room and, and look for yourself? And he went, in, he went in there, and he found there with the dead man, he found a Bible. He opened it up, knowing that it looked familiar, and inside was his mother's handwriting with his name and John 3.16 written out. He, he would say that he went to his office that night. She had highlighted several Bible verses, underlined several Bible verses that she wanted him to read. Verses like 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things become new. And, and so he spent the entire night reading the scriptures, especially the ones that his mother had outlined. And he went into his office that night, the president of the local atheist society, and he would say that he came out the next morning a believer in Jesus Christ, that his life was transformed by the scriptures. He left the medical profession, went to a theological college where he became a pastor. He served the Prospect Street Presbyterian Church in Hull, Scotland. He died in 1888 at the age of 49 years old. And while we don't know his name, he did author 17 hymns, of which the one that we know the most is revive us again. Now, I've been trying to bring you different folks with different music styles, and, and so tonight, if you like the Statler Brothers, you'll like this, okay? We all find ourselves adjusting our TV volume up and down, over and over again, trying to hear... Hallelujah, find the glory. Hallelujah,
just, uh, that, was, that was scratching my southern gospel itch, okay? So uh, I thought they did a great job with it there. And, and so and as I was listening to that second verse about all glory and power to the lamb that was slain, thinking about the man who wrote those words, a president of an atheist society, becoming a preacher of the gospel. What a testimony. I mean, that was his testimony in song, and that's the hymn that we most know him for. So we're in this series, Great Hymns of the Faith, and tonight the, the hymn is, of course, Revive Us Again. Now, the text that Dr. McKay used for the hymn is not the text we're going to use tonight. But I want to give you the two. He, he had two scripture verses in mind when he wrote that hymn. One of them was Psalm 85, verse 6. It says, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? And the other verse that he had in mind was Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And so those were the passages that he wrote the hymn from. But as we think about revival and think about the, the need for revival in our land, I want you to take your Bible and open it to the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 37. It's one of the best-known passages in the book of Ezekiel. And believe it or not, in 20, however many years, almost 28 years pastoring, I have never preached on the bone passage. If you know what the bone passage is. You're, if not, you're, you're about to find out. So I've never preached this passage ever. And so tonight's the first. And so Ezekiel chapter 37, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Ezekiel writes, The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, they were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also, he said to, to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord, God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from the graves. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place uh, you in your own land, then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it 
and performed it, says the Lord. God bless the reading of his word. Go ahead, be seated. As I was thinking about Revive Us Again and Revival in America, I am, I am convinced, as sure as I'm standing here, that without revival, there will not be survival of the United States of America. If, if we don't experience a revival, then, then I, I think as a nation, at some point, we are going to cease to exist. We have the appearance, if you look, we have the appearance of prosperity, we have the appearance of military power, um, financial markets doing well, moral and spiritual. Uh, while, while we have all of these signs, the moral and spiritual infrastructure are crumbling. Our, our, our foundation is decaying. It's weaker every day. And our hope is not in Washington and it's not in Wall Street. Our hope is in the Lord God. And, and that's what Ezekiel 37 is about. You know, even, even us, when I say the church, I'm talking about the church at large, but I would say even us at Eastwood, we need revival. Too many, too many churches are content with the status quo. Well, let's just leave things the way they are. There's a lot of people that are confused about what revival is and what it is not. Some confuse revival with a series of meetings at church. That is not revival. Some confuse it with evangelism. And that is not revival. Some see it as old-fashioned, which isn't true. Some think that it's not part of God's plan, which isn't true. We have to correct the inside the church the understanding of revival. Revival is what God desires for his people. It's the easiest way to explain it. It's what God desires for us. Billy Sunday said this, When is revival needed? When carelessness and unconcern keep the people asleep. When carelessness and unconcern keep the people asleep. Various men of God through the years have tried to define revival. Charles G. Finney said, Revival is a renewed conviction of sin and repentance, followed by an intense desire to live in obedience to God. It is giving up one's will to God in deep humility. R.A. Torrey said, Every true revival had its origin in prayer. Andrew Murray said, a revived church is the only hope for a dying world. Vance Havner, now listen to what Vance said. Sunday morning Christianity is the greatest hindrance to true revival. He went on to say, revival is falling in love with Jesus all over again. So let's talk about our text here tonight. Let's, let's kind of break it down. The first thing is what I call the description. The Holy Spirit takes Ezekiel to a place, and it's a very descriptive place. It's a valley filled with, with bones. You know, we all have divine appointments, but this shows us that all not, not all divine appointments are pleasant experiences. I mean, how, how would you like to be Ezekiel? You've answered the call to preach. You are a prophet of, of God, and he takes you to a valley, and you're the only thing living there, and there's nothing but bones. It'd be kind of, it, you know, I'd say, you know, God, I think we missed a turn back here somewhere. You know, it, it, it doesn't seem like it should be the place. It was a place of discomfort and unsettledness, and I think God calls us to those places sometimes. Ezekiel has no doubt that he's in the middle of God's word. Look at Will, look at verse one. He says, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out. So he says, being in this valley of dry bones is no mistake. This is exactly where God wanted me to be when he wanted me to be there. 
Do you think this was a surprising preaching assignment for Ezekiel? If you know the book of Ezekiel, you know that he's not shocked by this. Because back in Ezekiel chapter 2, when God is calling him, here's what we read in verses 3 and 4. Then he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. I am sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children, and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. You know, how would you like to get called to that church? The pastor search committee says, our people are stubborn and obstinate. You know, I I would think that I would probably say, let me pray about it. No, I don't think God's calling me there. Ezekiel knows what God is, the kind of people that God is calling him to, and so when he goes to the Valley of Dry Bones, he's not surprised. I think that whether you're a gospel witness at work or whether you're a preacher of the gospel, God often gives tough assignments. Isaiah 48, 4 says, For I knew how stubborn you were. Your neck muscles were iron. Your forehead was bronze. <laughs> think of what... Think of what that says you had a hard head and a stiff neck um acts 751 right stephen is defending the faith right before they're going to stone him to death and here's what stephen says you stiff-necked people your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised you are just like your ancestors you always resist the holy spirit and so god often calls us whether you know stephen was just he was a deacon He was just giving a witness, a gospel witness, before they put him to death. And so whether you're a gospel witness or a minister of the gospel, sometimes the assignments you get are tough. When we first started The Point, I would finish at about 4.30 every Wednesday, finishing the sermon. And so I would go up into the youth room. I'm letting you in on a little secret. I'd go up into the, to the 400 wing in one of the Sunday school classrooms, and I would preach to a bunch of empty seats. And I'd have my pen out, and I would make changes on my notes as, as I would say, well, this doesn't really flow well, or this would go better here. And so, so I'd stop preaching, and I'd make a note. And so I would, I would practice preaching before I would come in here just to, to a bunch of chairs and a whiteboard. That was my, my audience. You know, sometimes you preach to empty pews. Sometimes you preach to empty people sitting in the pews. Those are the times when the bones are bleached by worldly compromise and s- spiritual drought. It's a very descriptive place where he goes. Secondly, let's talk about his desperation. Look at verse 2. There were very many in the open valley, and they were very dry. Now, think of what this is saying. He's not looking at a bunch of skeletons. All right? He's looking at a bunch of bones that are disorganized. You may have two skull bones right next to two feet bone, or foot bones or ankle bones or something. He doesn't say that they're skeletons. It was just a valley of bones. Bones that have been picked clean by vultures and bleached white by the sun. It's a, it's a picture of great desperation. Not a lot of hope there. He's surrounded. Everywhere Ezekiel looks are the remnants of death. Let's think about the characteristics of death for a minute because that's what he's looking at. He's looking at at nothing but death. First of all, a dead person has no purpose, do they? A dead person has no goals, no dreams, no aspirations, no plans, no purpose. An Olympic champion pole vaulter by the name of Bob Richards later went into the ministry and he was serving a church in Long Beach, California. And one day, he asked this little 13-year-old girl in his church with Coke bottle glasses what she wanted to do when she grew up. And she looked at him, and 
he'll tell you she told him I'm going to be the best tennis player in the world and he thought to himself honey I hate to break your dreams but she had a purpose she she had a resolve he thought it was an unrealistic fantasy that she aspired to but Billie Jean King had a desire in her heart, an aspiration, a resolve, and she would go on to win 39 Grand Slam titles. Mark Spitz said that he was going to win seven gold medals. In the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, he only won two. And he came home and he was discouraged. He could have just quit, but instead he decided he was going to train harder because he had a resolve that he was going to win seven gold medals. And in 1972 at the Munich Games, he won seven gold medals, setting seven Olympic records. Now, besides being athletic, Billie Jean King, Mark Spitz had something that the deceased do not have. They had a purpose. They had a goal. They had aspirations. You remember what Solomon said in Proverbs 29, where there is no vision or where there is no purpose, we would say, people perish? Let me ask you, do you know your divine purpose for your life? Well, maybe even back up a step further from that, do you realize God has a divine purpose for your life? I mean, you're just not here to exist. And if if God has saved you, he, he has a specific purpose for your life. And so do you know that? And then do you know what it is? Dead person has no purpose. A dead person has no passion. There's no zeal, no emotion, no fire in the chest cavity of a corpse. A dead man's oblivious to his surroundings. There's nothing that's going to make him laugh, nothing that's going to make him cry. I don't know about you, but I want more passion. I want the passion like what Jeremiah had. Jeremiah was a man of passion. In Jeremiah 20, verse 9, then I said, I will not make mention of him. Jeremiah says, that's it. I'm not going to talk about the Lord anymore, nor speak anymore in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. He said, I I resolved I wasn't going to do it, but man, it was like a fire in my bones. It was passion, and it had to, to get out. The dead are not passionate now listen to me friend the dead are not passionate about the ways of God and they're not passionate about God's desires had a conversation with a young lady this week here in the office um she was here and and she was telling me about the church they go to and it's a church here in our city and if I called the church by name most of you would be familiar with it And she said, we've been members there for like six or seven years. And she said, ask me how many children have been saved during that time. I said, okay, how many children have been saved during that time? She said, zero. Her and her husband have led vacation Bible school there, but because of of some theology of, of the pastors that serve on staff there, they don't give children an invitation to come to faith in Christ. They just don't do it. And so this lady was burdened by that. This lady that was talking to me, she was saying, you know, I can't, I can't understand it. She said, I don't, I don't understand why they're not willing. She said, I was saved when, when I was very young. And, and her little niece, she said, is one year away from where I was when I was saved. And I know I'm saved. And she said, it just frightens me to think that she's not even going to be given the opportunity to be saved at that age. And then she told me about a discussion she had with her brother-in-law and sister-in-law. And her sister-in-law was, was like, well, and, and, and the brother-in-law is a deacon. 
at that church. And the sister-in-law's like, well, that's just, that's just who we are as a church. A dead person, and, and I, believe, I believe that she is spiritually alive, okay? I believe this woman is, is saved, but she is in desperate need of revival. Because a dead person is not passionate at all about the things of God. And if you can be a member of a church for six or seven years and have lots of kids coming in and out the doors of that church and not one ever gets saved and it doesn't bother you, there's the problem. We need passion. A dead person has no passion. A corpse doesn't rejoice when a prodigal comes home. A corpse is not going to praise God for spiritual victories in their life corpse has no passion spiritual rigor mortis and so many people that i know has no purpose no passion but a third thing about a dead person they have no productivity a dead person is marked by barrenness sterility stagnation they all demonstrate death um, businesses and churches that are alive are marked by productivity if you have a business that's not very productive or not productive at all then that's a dead business you're probably going to go out of business same about a church. If a church isn't, if it's alive, it's going to be productive. Jesus, speaking to the church at Sardis in Revelation 3, verse 1, said this, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. He said, I know your reputation. Listen, Sardis Church, you have a reputation that everything is great, but you're dead. I think a lot of churches are like Sardis. They live in the afterglow of a glorious past. They look back upon a time when God was at work in their life and they want to live in the bask of that light rather than asking what is God doing now. The baptistry in those churches is empty. The altar is a place of loneliness and the aisles are cold. Now, because you guys are the typical Wednesday night crowd, I just want to share something with you that happened. I had coffee not long ago with a man that um, has been active in church work his entire life. If I called his name, some of you would know him. Um, he and his wife came here on a Wednesday night. And they've been here a few times. But they got here at 6.15, he told me. And they sat here for 15 minutes. And nobody said a word to them. And he looked at me and he, and he said, Pastor, you just need to know sometimes you, you think you have a friendly church and you're really not. And that crushed me to think that that would happen. You know, I think sometimes because we get up during a welcome time and shake hands with the people right around us, we assume that we're friendly. And, and I'm not, listen, I am not getting on to you. I'm just telling you the reality of it. I don't mind even telling you who it was. It was Gary Watkins. Gary Watkins pastored for years. Okay, just recently retired, moved back to the area. Many of you know him. He was your pastor, many of you, at Hillview years ago. And he said he sat here for 15 minutes and nobody talked to him. He and his wife both. We need, we need productivity. We need, we need life. Churches have magnificent facilities, budgets. They run like a business. But the atmosphere of worship has the chill of death to it. No purpose, passion, productivity. In the valley of dry bones, all Ezekiel saw was deadness and desolation as far as the eye could see. And so God asked him in verse 3, he says, Son of man, can these bones live? I got to thinking about if I were Ezekiel, 
this afternoon as I was putting this together, and I thought, you know, my answer, in all honesty, would have been, um, no, I don't think they can. But Ezekiel's a lot wiser than I am. Ezekiel says, only you know, Lord. What he was saying is, Lord, if you want them to live, they can live. It's up to me, no, but if it's up to you, they can. What he was saying is what we studied a few weeks ago in Matthew 19, 26. With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So let's talk about the disclosure. Talk about hard preaching assignments. Look at verse 4. He said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. You want me to preach to who? God, are you serious? A bunch of bones? I'll preach to them, but I'm not giving an invitation because I don't think any of them are going to respond. I mean, this is a hard preaching assignment. Is this prophecy really about the bones in the valley? No, it's about the restoration and the resurrection of the nation of Israel. They had compromised their convictions. They would worship other gods, even though, like we talked about Sunday, they would say, well, God, you're my favorite God. You know, we do that today. God, God I have the God of pleasure. I have the God of, of, of possessions. I have the God of career, and I have the God of church, but you're my favorite God. God says he doesn't want any other gods besides him. Spiritually, as good as dead, symbolized by dry, disconnected bones was the nation of Israel. But in 1948-49, we see this prophecy fulfilled as God began to draw Jews from the four corners of the earth back to Israel. But I think there's a powerful application for the church today, not just for Israel. God had to chasten and cleanse and restore his people by his spirit, and I believe that he has the power to chasten and cleanse and restore his church by his spirit. The only way a church revival is possible is by the intervention of God. The church cannot resuscitate herself only by God's hand. We can organize, we can, we can agonize, we can emphasize, we can publicize, but we can't produce revival. If revival comes, it's only by the power of God. Psalm 62, 11. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Friend, if, if we want to see more people coming down the aisle of Eastwood Baptist Church, if we want to see altars filled with people, yeah, God's got to work in our heart. But, but the reality is, he's got to reveal his power here in this place. We, listen, I can preach, but I, can't, I, I could manipulate and get people to the altar, but that would be temporary. It really wouldn't be life-changing. And we all know people that that do those kinds of things. If we're going to experience genuine, true revival, it has to take an outpouring of the Spirit of God. The same God who breathed breath into the life of dry bones and made them an army can do that for the church. So let's talk next about uh, the development. A real revival is not typically instantaneous. You know, you don't just, boom, have a revival. It's usually a process, a, a series of steps. In verse 10... It's, it identifies these bones as an exceedingly great army. But there were several steps that took place before they became that exceedingly great army. Back up to verse 7. It began with noise. Look at what verse 7 says. So I prophesied as, as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise. 
And so I looked up that Hebrew word today to try to figure out what it means, and it literally means sound or voice. And so some of the folks I was reading said it represented the voice of God, so that Ezekiel heard the voice of God. Some said it was a sound like as in the trumpet. We know that the trumpet of God is going to it's going to precede the resurrection of the dead. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with a trumpet, we know. In 2 Samuel 5, David wants to know the precise moment when they should attack the Philistines. Here's what God tells him in verse 24. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees. Now, nobody's going to be marching in the mulberry trees. It's, it's God giving the sound. When you hear that sound, then you shall advance quickly, for then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. David heard the sound and heard the noise and knew it was time to attack. At the ascension, right before Jesus ascended, he told the disciples to wait, to not do anything until the coming of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2, verse 2, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So the coming of the Holy Spirit was signaled by a sound or by a noise. And so the first thing to this, these becoming a mighty army was there was a sound. Secondly, there was a shaking, again in verse 7. So I prophesied, I was commanded, as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, a rattling, a, a, a shaking. It literally, rattling literally means shaking or quaking. Some likened it to an earthquake. Others likened it to, to the way the ground shakes when there's thunder. If I got to thinking about that, when God does some of his mighty works, sometimes he introduces it by the ground shaking. Give you some examples. In Acts 4, Peter and John are arrested and they're told, don't preach in the name of Jesus. In verse 12 of that chapter, they say, listen, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They, they say, we've got to preach the name of Jesus. So then they tell him, no, you can't do that anymore. And right before they let him go, here's what they said. After that, in verse 20, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And so they're, they're amazed that these guys are untrained, uneducated men, and they let them go after commanding them not to speak. We get down to Acts 4.31. It says this, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. We know they get arrested again in Acts chapter 5. But it goes back to chapter 4, verse 31. They, they, I mean, filled with the Spirit, they're going to preach with boldness now. So the process involved a noise, and then it involved a shaking, and then there was organization. The bones came together, bone to bone, it says. All of those dry bones begin to gather together correctly, properly. Flesh begin to cover the bones. So what was a boneyard now? Think about it. At this point, it's not a boneyard, but it's a mortuary. Probably one of the largest mortuaries you've ever seen in your life. Because they're still dead. They're covered with flesh, but they're not alive yet. The development drastically changed things, but dead is dead. Some of them were probably beautiful when they died. Some of them were probably aged when they died. Some of them had probably been involved in accidents and, and trauma when they died, and, and now they've all been covered back in flesh. Some had recently died, some had been dead for years, but every deceased person is marked by a certain amount of decay and corruption. I thought about that. That's a mortuary, and I thought, you know, many churches are not boneyards. 
but they're filled with dead flesh. When you go through the motions of worship and worship is empty, when it's cold, when it's lifeless, and, and I don't think it is here very often, and I don't think it is really ever unless we allow it to be that way in our own life. So in verse 9, Ezekiel is now told to prophesy to the breath. Some translations say wind. The man has done all that he can do, and now it's up to God. The congregation has been assembled, but there's no commotion. They're not an army yet. The single missing ingredient was the breath of life, God's breath of life. And that leads us to the last thing, the divine. Now instead of a valley of dry bones, there's a living, loyal, united, mighty army. Friends, that's what revival will do for a church. Rather than having dry bones, it'll be a united army for the cross of Christ. That's what revival does for, for a church. Look at verse 13 and 14. God is very clear how this all came about. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I've opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from the graves, I will pour my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it. And so the only way that this kind of revival, this kind of transformation takes place is if the Lord does it. That's why I call it the divine here. Close with a story. In 1864, there was the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain in the Civil War. A 21-year-old lieutenant colonel got hit by some exploding shrapnel, and it broke his arm and broke his shoulder, and it produced wounds in his chest cavity to where blood was coming out. And he was laying there on the battlefield among all of the, the dead soldiers, his dead comrades around him, and a medic came by and checked him, tried to find the heartbeat, couldn't discern a heartbeat, and so left him there for dead. This lieutenant colonel spent the night among his dead comrades, too weak to call out, too weak to, to cry out, just had to lay there. The next morning, a platoon came in to clear out the dead bodies, and they noticed that he was breathing. He had breath in him. Well, they took him to a hospital. And at the hospital, he told the chaplain of a conversion that had happened in his life that night on the battlefield. He had went to Yale. He, he was raised by godly parents in New England, and they had been praying for him while he served in the military. And this was like his third enlistment, third time he had been in a different command. And, um, and, and yet he was, he was an unbeliever. And, and the only thing he had going for him that night when he laid there on the battlefield among those dead bodies in the pool of blood were the prayers, the prayers of his parents. And they were praying for him. And he began to remember all of the things that they taught him when he was a child. And he realized what really mattered in life and there on, 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 in that night on the battlefield he gave his heart to the Lord and he told the chaplain about it. Well, who was the bleeding 21-year-old lieutenant colonel? His name was Russell H. Conwell. Go ahead and put him up there. Russell H. Conwell. At 21, he's left for dead. At 36, he's ordained into the Baptist ministry. He pastored the Grace Baptist Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. 
He then decided to plant a church and planted a church called the Baptist Temple, which was a very important church. He started a night school to train other preachers. That night school became Temple University in Philadelphia. Conwell founded the Samaritan Hospital in 1891. He wrote 20 books which were widely read. Because of his life and his ministry to other pastors and his own ministry, thousands upon thousands of people have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. When you think of a divine process playing out, think of Russell H. Conwell. What appeared to just be a corpse in a battlefield, in a valley of death, was transformed. And God did something new and something great. Maybe tonight you need a divine process to play out in your life. Maybe you need a fresh breath of God. It's not that, it's not that you're dead. You're spiritually alive. You've been born again. But, but maybe you've allowed the world to wound you to where you're weak and unable to respond. If you'll just cry out to the Lord, as Conwell did that night on the battlefield, I believe that God will raise you up and make you a soldier in his army, a soldier of the cross. Father, I thank you for this passage and what it teaches us about how we need to, how we need to be revived. And, and God, I thank you that, that it has ramifications for Israel and we're seeing it come true even today. But God, I believe it also has ramifications for the church that the church needs to experience life again. Just as every one of those bodies, those bones, every one of those sets of bones were alive at one point and it allowed decay and death to come in, God, I'm convinced that oftentimes in churches the same thing happens. People are alive, they're born again, and yet we allow death and decay to come in and we compromise and, and then we're just barely holding on. God, if that's the case for any of us here tonight, I pray that we would cry out to you. You're our only hope. And that you would work your divine process in our life. And that we would be restored to life and that you would do a great work in us and a great work through us. God, I pray that this is a message that would resonate with a greater church called Eastwood. Not just the folks who are here, but God, help us to as we experience revival in our lives to ignite the lives of those around us. May it be so for your glory, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm here tonight. If you need to 